Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Well, today we're going to meet Juan Pujol Garcia. He was a spy, and this is his story. Juan Miguel Guajaro was born in 1912 into an upper-middle-class family in politically volatile Barcelona. His parents were very well-respected within the community, and his father, a prominent businessman, raised his family to share his worldview of decency, liberty, critical thought, and that anyone who could should try to make a difference in the world. Despite his family's every effort to tame him, Juan was a wild child, or according to his very serious mother, a very bad child. But he wasn't really bad. He was just very busy. Juan's mind took him on crazy adventures that his body acted out. Some of these adventures left Juan bruised and scraped up, but always happy, for in his imagination, he was emerging the unlikely hero. The boy's imagination knew no bounds, and although this distressed his conventional family, it was Juan's imagination that would prove to be his greatest asset. Juan's mother spent his boyhood years trying to get the fear of God into her child, and Juan's father spent the days rolling his eyes and sighing, but there was always a smile behind the sigh. In an effort to reform Juan, his parents sent him to Catholic boarding school at the age of seven. Oh, those nuns are going to straighten him out. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Although attempts to create a disciplined life failed miserably, the four years in school did spark something for Juan, a love of history and languages. By the time Juan was a young man, he spoke five languages, Spanish, Catalan, French, English, and Portuguese. You know, it, as we kind of go through this, it sometimes sounds like he might be just kind of a guy fumbling through life. But think about that, five languages. Right. I mean, he had to have a truly brilliant mind. Right. Well, many people say there's a fine line between brilliance and insanity. I think that the the people that kind of ride that line tend to be rather eccentric, don't you think? Yeah, I think from what I've read of him, he was very eccentric, yes. Right, right, and brilliant. Well, the increasing violence in Barcelona led Juan's father to move the family outside of the city, which afforded Juan the ability to live an existence of sweet-talking girls, hiking, quoting poetry, and reading philosophy. He sounds like a kid after your own heart. He does. I was going to say that sounds like a pretty good life to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the ripe old age of 15, Juan believed that he had arrived and he decided that it was time to quit school. Well, he made this grandiose declaration to his father. As a dad, I'm sure you know that that went over quite well, right? I have. I I have made those grandiose declarations and I have had those made to me. And they are quite meaningless, yes. (laughs) Right. Well, um, just like you, his dad sighed and told him if that was the case, it was also time that Juan find himself a job. Juan Sr. understood his boy, and he tried to build a fence around him, still letting him be himself. And often Juan felt like his father was really the only one who got him. 
Well, Juan quickly fast talked his way into a job, but just as his father suspected, he rapidly got bored and then quit. During this time in his life, Juan also found himself entangled in numerous but very passionate love affairs, each one taking a toll on his romantic heart. Whenever he would find himself in the depths of despair, it was his father who would be the one to comfort him. At 19, Juan woke up with serious pains in his stomach, which turned out to be appendicitis. He ended up developing a very serious infection from it, and that kept him in a very highly feverish state. But Juan's father never left his side. And as we, as I've read about him when we go through this, the one thing you cannot understate is his father's influence on him. Right. I mean, that's really what drove him more than anything else. For sure. Definitely. Juan stated later that sometime between sleeping and hallucination, he saw his father weeping, and it was the only time that he ever saw his dad cry. Maybe that was a hallucination, though. (laughs) That is possible. That's a good point. After three hellish days of these hallucinations, Juan pulled through. Yet, something happened to the young man after he battled his way back to the living. He emerged with a desire for the practical, and he decided, rather abruptly, to receive his education in... Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Chicken husbandry. What was that? (laughs) Chicken husbandry. Huh. Is there a chicken wifery? I, I, I think it's the same thing. Oh, okay. I mean, really, I would think it would be rooster husbandry. Because technically, I think that's what it would have to be, right? Yeah, that's just an interesting path Name to choose. For it. I, yeah, it is. It is. It's to like to go from all these romantic notions to. Yeah, I'm going to raise I chickens. I am going to mate chickens. Yeah, it seems it's an interesting choice. Good for him. Well, while he was on this path to seeking out a more conventional life, he also met and married a quiet, very devout girl named Marguerite that reminded him of his mother. In 1933, Juan reported for his one-year mandatory military service to the leftist Republican government, but this really only gained him skill in saluting and horsemanship. Well, really, saluting horsemanship philosophizing, talking to pretty girls. What more do you need in life? He can ride a horse. All he has to do is learn how to dance. Yeah, all the skills. Well, during his one year um, of service, he was really not exposed to the horrors of war, which is interesting because of what was happening in Barcelona at that time. But it was the next year that Juan experienced his first real and most devastating tragedy, his father's unexpected death. Both he and his father had taken ill at the same time, and because Juan was still very frail and sick at his father's passing, he was unable to attend services, and this completely broke Juan's tender heart. Juan had always believed his father to be the perfect model of a man. He knew he wanted to do something successful like his father did, but he just couldn't find that perfect thing. Basically, he was just lost. He bought a couple of movie theaters and tried to make a go of that, which is kind of an interesting choice, don't you think? Yeah, I know. I'm going to go from chicken husbandry to yeah, owning, owning a yeah. couple of movie theaters. Well, he yeah. just kind of, it just seemed like he would get, he seems very impulsive to me. Right, right. Well, he ended up selling those 
Um, then he tried his hand. He went back to chicken farming. So he tried his hand at that. That too did not work out so well. Juan really was a true visionary and he was full of passion, but his practical side was just not as well developed. He got very discouraged and he decided to just adhere to the expected doldrums of married life. And he ended up just with a very simple job as a salesman at a neighboring chicken farm. Then on July 17th, 1936, the Spanish Civil War began and everything changed. The violence humming in the streets of Barcelona now hit a crescendo. Cathedrals, buildings, political headquarters were reduced to burning embers. Priests were being hunted and murdered by radicals. Strikes were being called by anti-fascist unions, and resources and food were incredibly scarce. Through all of this, Juan Pujol was incredibly conflicted. His father had taught him to love liberty tolerance, religious freedom, and nothing about any of this made any sense. Despite his desire for freedom, he hated the wild rhetoric of the communists and the anarchists. And this is where you, we, I, we could do 10, pay, 10 episodes on the Spanish Civil War. Right. But he was born into a family. There were two sides, the nationalists and the Republicans. And don't confuse our terminology because the Republicans were the leftists mm-hmm. from his father's teaching naturally have been a leftist, but both sides committed just such horrid, horrid, horrid atrocities right. that he was just lost. He just hated both sides because a communist, he would have naturally aligned with a leftist. The communists were on that side and he hated the communist. But on the other side, there were fascists, and he hated the fascists, too. So it really left him with just wondering, what, what does it all mean, I guess? It was, he was very disillusioned by the horror that he saw. He was. Well, he watched helplessly as his father's business and home was seized and ravaged, and as his neighbors and his friends took up arms against one another. And in those moments, he began to passionately loathe war. The chaos rocking Barcelona was Pujol's first experience with espionage. The spy game at the time was savage, but also wildly blown out of proportion. Orwell, who fought in the Spanish Civil War, described the environment with, A horrible atmosphere of suspicion had sprung up. People were infected with spy mania and were creeping around, whispering everyone was a spy. In fact, many were constantly accused of sabotage. 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 And many were killed based on mere accusations of treachery. It's a spy. It's a spy. She's a spy. She's a witch. (laughs) Not wanting to fight for either side, Juan ended up holding up in his wife Marguerite's family home. He couldn't leave. He was forced to hide upon every sound. If he was captured as a deserter, his punishment would mean certain death. Although Pujol tried to be vigilant, he was a man of unrelenting energy, and sometimes he was a bit louder than he realized. Around Christmas of 1936, he was cracking a nut a bit too intensely. It was Christmas, and he was, you know, 
getting into some walnuts or pecans or something. And that drew enough attention that the police showed up and they removed him at gunpoint. This is the one part of this that I do not understand. <laughs> All right. I have cracked walnuts before and, and they give out a little <laughs> crunchy noise. But how do you crack nuts so intensely that the police are called on you? It's almost like, when you, do you know when people are reading a magazine and they flip the pages or, or they're clicking a pen, something like that? How do you click right. a pen so much that someone calls the police on you? I mean, I I'm know, just, how was, was he breaking them with chairs? What was he doing here? I have no idea, but it's kind of interesting. Well, he was arrested for desertion, and soon he found himself in a cold, dungeon-like cell. And also, if you're wanted by the police, don't you think you would be quiet with your nuts? <laughs> you would just think, maybe this isn't this isn't the time to crack a nut. Like, that would be what his thoughts should have been. But now we're past that, and he's in jail, so... Are you, are you able to be with me? I'm, or I'm are you following still stuck you. There? Yeah, I'm just, I'm still lost there. I'm just, <laughs> I'm wondering how you crack nuts so loud that the police come. <laughs> well, they did, and he's in a jail cell. And just as he was beginning to accept his depressing fate, one night he was woken up with a start and forced out of his cell only to find that he was the focus of a prison break. This guy's kind of like Forrest Gump a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Only he's like a super, 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 super smart Forrest yeah. Gump, but like not He's in the in middle of ways. everything that happens, though. Right. It turns out his wife, Marguerite, whom Juan had actually decided he'd found boring and had been having serious doubts about her before the war made things so chaotic, she had organized his escape through a secret Catholic organization called Socorro Blanco. That was a pretty interesting organization because it was it was on the nationalist side. It was a it was founded by women. It was a charitable organization founded by women. Then they became part of the resistance on the nationalist side, and they were called the White Relief, and you had the Red Relief on the other side doing the mm -hmm. same thing. So you had these underground resistance movements started by women mm -hmm. on each side. It was, really it, was, it was really interesting and really confusing to try to figure yeah. out who was on what side at any given moment. Right. Well, the organization members arranged for him to stay hidden with a network family for a while, where he was again expected to stay silent and still. And this made him even more restless. And no matter what you do, even if it's Christmas time, don't give him <laughs> any nuts. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure that he drove the family crazy because they didn't know about that energy and, and the fact that he did things a little too loud right. and stuff like that. Can you imagine? They they were probably just like shh. Yeah. Could you all imagine him eating cereal? <laughs> well, eventually things got so violent in the area that the family abandoned their apartment, and Pujol was forced to fend for himself. Really, for the first time in his whole life, the flat had to appear as though no one lived there, and the only interaction that he had with other humans were very sparse and hurried deliveries of food and supplies. Juan already possessed an overactive imagination. It's very possible that it was in this period of his life that he formed the foundation that he ended up building his army of spies on later in life. He had a lot of time to think. 
and no nuts. <laughs> That's right. Eventually, Juan was able to move about again, but at 25, he had become so stressed and sickly that he actually looked more like 45. Due to his change in appearance, Juan was able to obtain a fake ID. At this time, border guards were killing fugitives, so he decided to join up with the Republicans under a new name, but the fake ID made him appear too old for compulsory service. Because of his desire to serve, or his perceived desire to serve, he was hailed as a hero just for volunteering. That's a pretty brilliant move. You get hailed as a hero for fulfilling your compulsory service because you right. look so old at 25. Right. I, and that, yeah, this or, is before podcasts. He didn't have a podcast partner that aged him. So I wonder oh what he did. Oh, my goodness. I think it's kind of funny. I mean, he was basically trying to escape, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he, and he ended up being hailed as a hero. So because of this hero status and the respect that his military peers gave him, it allowed him to kind of choose whatever job that he wanted. And he liked the idea of being a signals officer. And after a mere two-week training, he was sent to the front as part of one of the international brigades. And these were made famous by George Orwell and Ernest Hemingway. In Whom the Bell Tolls. Yes. Great book. The casualty rate at the front was over 50%. And although Juan had claimed to be experienced in signals, he actually wasn't at all. This was kind of a theme of his Doesn't life. Doesn't really surprise me, yeah. Yeah, he, he tends to claim he is good at things that he doesn't He just know figures he's a quick all. learner. I mean, he learned five right. languages. How hard could yeah, it be to lay right. cable? I'll do it. I'll, I'll right. put signals out, yeah. He didn't know Morse code or semaphore, so instead of sending cables, he was ordered to lay telephone cables from the rear command areas to the front. That sounds like an unsafe job to me. Yeah, a little bit. Well, he managed to be safe enough to defect to the nationalist side during the Battle of the Ebro in 1938. And that was kind of part of his plan to... Mm -hmm. join up with the Republicans because he was disgusted with them and joined the Nationalists. And that's how he got there, by laying, laying the cable, got him close enough to the lines to defect. <laughs> it could get right. you close enough to the lines to get shot, too. But, yeah, that was kind of a bold move on his part there. It was. But he found himself equally disgusted by the Nationalist side. Then he ended up being struck and imprisoned by his colonel, after he expressed sympathy for the monarchy. While imprisoned, a kind priest who had known and respected Juan Sr. helped secure Pujol's release. Following this captivity, the frail Juan was sent to the hospital, where a young nurse named Araceli cared for him and caught his eye. And he was married at the time, you have to remember, but I, I have this theory about nurses. You know how nurses are always portrayed to be so beautiful? Mm -hmm. Do you know why that is, I think? Why? It's because when you're in the hospital, you're always in pain or they're giving <laughs> you like fentanyl. <laughs> I mean, anybody that put injects you with fentanyl when you're about to have surgery, you go kind of <laughs> hazy and it looks like an angel is standing over the top of you. It's like beer goggles. Constantly. Yeah. So it's they give you fentanyl. Of course, they're That's beautiful. Interesting. That's an interesting theory. Well, apparently Araceli was, in truth, very, very beautiful, and she too noticed him right back. And during his recovery, he suddenly no longer wanted to be married to Marguerite, 
and following a quick divorce, made it his new mission to get to know Araceli better. After regaining his health, he took a job working at the somewhat seedy Hotel Condestable. He ended up marrying the lovely but fiery Araceli, who worked with him at the hotel. And it was at the Condestable that Pujol met a very important guest, Kim Philby, war correspondent for the London Times, Russian spy, and future head of the Spanish section of MI6. While Juan was working at the hotel, the Civil War finally ended on April 1st. The war left a deep impact on Juan. He learned to have an intense mistrust for both communism and fascism. And in early World War II, fascism took the starring role on a global stage, and Juan Pujol, who had a true, intense desire to fight evil, felt his soul well up with a physical need to do something, anything. And you have to remember the Civil War ended in 1939, and that was when Hitler was really coming to power. And strangely, as I said, he was a brilliant man. He saw Hitler for who he was. Right. At a time when not everyone did. Right. And that's, yeah. Well, in 1941, Juan Pujol Garcia approached intelligence officers at the British Embassy in Madrid, and he offered himself up as a spy. Officers interviewed him for a bit, but they quickly discovered that the plain, passionate little man in front of them had absolutely zero experience in military sabotage. 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 Yeah, how hard could it be? That's what he was thinking. How hard could it be? <laughs> I think every job that he's ever been offered, he just thinks, eh, how hard could it be? I can do that. Well, I mean. I mean, listen, he was a guy who served on both sides in the war. I mean, right. that should have given him a clue to the kind of cunning and sharp mind that the guy had. He survived the war being mm -hmm. captured by both sides and then fighting for both sides. Right. But that might also have given them cause for concern. Well, yeah. <laughs> he was an <laughs> anyway, opportunist. They all but laughed poor Juan out of the office. But. Juan, determined to be a man worthy of his father's name, would not be deterred. Since he had served both sides of the Spanish War, he decided to use that to his benefit. He went to the Germans and he emphasized this very aspect of his service, which again kind of goes to what you're talking about, about how brilliant he was. He knew exactly how to get the Germans to pay attention to him. He knew it was the deception that they would be impressed by. This guy had to have just, to me, incredible people skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he must have been able to read people extremely well. Right. Yeah. He crafted a story that he was a Nazi sympathizer in the Spanish government who traveled often to London. And this was a pretty impressive lie, given that Pujol could not speak a bit of English. Well, actually, it's a pretty bold lie. But, you know, again, he figured, how hard could it be? <laughs> well, on the strength of a forged diplomatic passport, German intelligence officers bought Pujol's story. So instead of just getting regular forged documents, he had to be a diplomat. Yeah, yeah. We're not really sure how he got them, but we do know that he faked them. <laughs> That's what we know. The German agent interviewing Juan was so impressed by the ingenuity that it took to procure those documents, he finally decided that the man in front of him might just be effective at the game of sabotage. Sabotage. 
sabotage. Sabotage. The Germans paid for Juan's intelligence training courses, granted him a stipend, and gave him the code name Alaric after the Gothic chief who had sacked Rome. They were hoping this new agent could do the same with the British Empire. The German recruiter sent Juan to London to set up a network of spies. Well, Juan, again, not knowing English, opted against London and set himself up in Lisbon instead. London, Lisbon, tomato, tomato. (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, at that time, Lisbon was like this den of spies, too. Right. And I wonder if people <laughs> yeah. like just got sent there by accident. Like <laughs> they're supposed to go to London. Yeah, go to London. But they didn't really speak English, so <laughs> they just got it wrong. Right. Or they're muttering in these low yeah. tones. Yeah. A low, low talker, yeah. <laughs> well, Juan was under pressure to be convincing. A lot, a lot of pressure. The whole not living in Britain thing, well, he mailed his letters from Lisbon. But he acted as if he had a pilot under his command who was secretly transporting the letters in hopes that they would not be intercepted by the British. Juan spent his days at the library writing wordy letters to Germany and creating detailed reports seemingly out of thin air. But in truth, he was gathering his information from a blue guide to Great Britain, <laughs> oh, God. French newspapers, a Portuguese book on the British fleet, <laughs> a French-English dictionary of military terminology, which apparently he could only read half of, and a map of Britain. (laughs) Could you imagine what this guy could do if he had Google? (laughs) Or could speak English. (laughs) Speak English, (laughs) yeah. Well, the fake reports were so intensely believed that the British, upon intercepting the reports, launched a nationwide manhunt for the spy who had infiltrated their country. And this is at a time where Britain was very, very pleased with themselves because there were supposed to be no Axis spies in Britain. So this was kind of unsettling for them to hear. But you had a fake spy (laughs) sending (laughs) fake news. And and Britain's all up in arms like, oh my God, where is this guy? Gives a whole new meaning to fake news, doesn't it? What's really funny is, you know, Britain is all proud that they don't have spies. But there were spies literally everywhere else. Exactly. (laughs) Everywhere else was a hotbed of spies. Eventually, Juan had the Germans convinced that he had recruited and was supervising a network of at least 27 spies, each with their own complicated backstory. And I mean, when we say complicated backstory, they had wives and kids and what they did before they became spies and like their childhood, like what dogs they had as kids he got a pension for one of the guy for the imaginary spy that got killed right yeah yeah one of his fake spies got killed (laughs) and the wife got a pension and the wife that didn't exist and each one of these spies that were supposedly working for him they all got paid yeah from germany yeah and germany dubbed juan pujol spy network arabelle so that was the code name that was getting thrown around everywhere Although Germany was paying for their fancy home in Lisbon, where the Germans thought was London, Juan's wife, Araceli, knew the situation was not sustainable. So, she took herself to the British embassy, without Juan knowing, to report on knowledge of a German spy. (laughs) That kills me. He's Um, not a spy. (laughs) 
<laughs> she she reported, I, I know a German spy. <laughs> like, but she was mostly ignored until finally, desperate, she admitted that the spy was in fact her husband. And he had only developed himself as a spy to offer himself up as a more valuable spy to Britain. Can you imagine what they're thinking as <laughs> she's telling them all this? They're just, they, they have to be baffled. First of all, the guy's not a spy. He's impersonating a spy. Right. And his wife's turning him in for being a, not for being a fake spy, but for being a real spy. The guy <laughs> right. knows absolutely nothing, except right. he learned a little bit of geography in there, I guess. But. <laughs> she ended up showing them proof that Juan really was the the entire Arabelle network. British intelligence, whose interceptions had noted Arabelle, they were, I mean, they were searching for Arabelle, they pondered the situation and they found, upon further examination, that Juan Pujol actually was the mastermind spy and spy network that had been eluding them. And they searched and searched and searched and didn't find him because it's hard to hunt down someone down who isn't there. Right. So. <laughs> that tends to be rather difficult. Yeah, they were looking for those 27 spies. <laughs> that didn't exist, they yeah. They dig deep British, in his head. Just think how many people that had to take to try to track down 27 people and their families. Like, can you imagine how insane they must have felt? <laughs> like, <laughs> trying to find the family members of the family members. and Oh, it's crazy. Well, British agents tracked down Pujol. And when MI5 realized that he had never set one foot in England, yet had crafted this intricate, bogus network of spies, they immediately saw the potential power of utilizing him as an asset. See, and do you know what I really think happened here? What? I think when they tracked him down, they had spent so much manpower. Whoever was in charge of all this was like, okay, we're going to put you on the payroll and you're not going to tell anybody this happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you imagine though that they meet him and he's just this guy writing letters in the library and they're like, "Yeah, what the heck? Yeah. Well, by January of 1944, Juan Pujol Garcia had sent over 4,000 transmissions to Germany. And when we say sent, he wrote 4,000 yeah. transmissions to Germany. The grateful Germans believed that he had this network of spies under him, as well as 11 well-placed contacts within London, one that they even believed was in the Ministry of Information. Because Juan didn't do anything lightly. He went all the way. Oh, <laughs> was yeah. Like, he was like, um, couldn't just be a regular guy. It has They have to be in the Ministry of Information. Again, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> right. At this time, John Masterman... I think it was Masterman, but I like to say Masterman, was the creator of the British Double Cross system. He was a mastermind. Who else would you pick but John Mastermind? Well, it was John Masterman. But still, I mean, seriously, like... Should have been and, Mastermind. It, but he was destined to do that. Masterman, and he's in charge of the British Double Cross system? That's just crazy. Isn't there a bunch of libertarian books written about the Masterman? Never I mind. don't know. And Rand. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, Masterman decided that Pujol needed to work for Britain, and they brought him to London in 1942, where he met Desmond Bristow and Tommy Harris, two other agents in the double-cross system. 
Juan Pujol had transmitted so many messages to Germany and had been so detailed in his bakery that it took Agent Bristow eight days, eight, to interrogate him to determine that this little man was telling the truth. He was telling the truth about lying. (laughs) Right? After combing through every elaborate detail of Juan's story, Bristow was convinced the man was earnest in his desire to work for Britain. And this, this is where the story gets really, really serendipitous. Bristow reported his positive assessment to his supervisor, who happened to be none other than Kim Philby, the agent who had long ago frequented Juan Pujol's shabby hotel. Juan Pujol Garcia was given the code name Garbo because he was the greatest actor that MI6 had ever encountered. Juan's first mission was Operation Torch. Operation Torch was the first time that the U.S. and Britain planned an invasion. They planned an invasion of North Africa to get into Southern Europe, but it was really kind of pushed by Stalin because he was fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front and he wanted the U.S. to open up another front to relieve pressure. The Americans at that time, not to make this too long, felt like they could go in through France. Churchill did not believe that anyone could, but he thought that he could possibly get in through North Africa and then work his way down to Europe, kind of backdoor Europe that way. MI5 decided to give Juan accurate operational information, but would sabotage Sabotage. sabotage the posts so they would always arrive just a wee bit late. It never occurred to the Germans that it was their agent that might be the problem. One of his case officers even tried to make him feel better about it, saying, Your last reports were all magnificent, and we are so very sorry that they arrived late. Each time that the Germans would apologize... Juan would get very huffy with them. He would act like they were unprofessional, yeah. Right. It's so funny. So Agent Garbo and his fellow Agent Harris played a key part in the D-Day deception. Pujol was to inform the Germans that the opening phase of the invasion was underway as the airborne landings started and four hours before the seaborne landings began. D-Day being a key to winning World War II and getting into Europe, They had the whole coastline of France fortified, and they had Calais fortified the strongest because that was the shortest route across the channel. So what they tried to make Hitler believe was that's where they were going to attack. What happened was that Patton created this ghost army right across from Calais that looked like that's where it was coming from. And they thought all of these troops were there, and then they had another one up north to invade Norway. But again, it was a ghost army. They had fake planes, fake tanks made out of wood, boats made out of rubber. It was just a big fake. They had to invade somewhere, and they had chosen Normandy because that was the least fortified of all the Mm -hmm. places because Hitler was convinced it was going to be in Calais. Rommel, on the other hand, who was in Normandy, thought it was going to be you know, probably there, and he had it fortified very well. So... What Juan did was he sent over information about the D-Day invasion, the day of it, you know, early in the morning, 3 a.m., and he sent the proper information, but he sent it late. Too late for them to do anything about it. Too late for them to do anything about it at all. Right. D-Day happens, and then Juan says, hey, don't forget about these armies down here either. He tells the Germans that. 
he doesn't tell them that there's going to be an attack there. He just reminds them, you know, plants that mm -hmm. seed in their head. Well, Rommel, who was at Normandy, wanted to move all these troops because Calais was the most heavily fortified. That's where they had the most troops. He wanted to move the troops up there. But because Juan said, hey, don't forget about these people down here. And Rommel was one of Germany's great, great generals. Mm -hmm. Hitler told him no. The field marshal told him no. Hitler said no. Don't move them. This D-Day thing, you know, at Normandy is a fake we know they have all these troops over here. That's right. where the real attacks are going to come from. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about what he did, he told the truth. But, I mean, he, without him being able to pull this off, there's a good chance that D-Day goes completely differently when they invade it. Right, right. I mean, it's pretty, pretty central to the success of it. Well, because the it was so successful, Juan Pujol Garcia, the man whose mother bemoaned his inability to do anything right, earned the OBE, or Officer of the Order of the British Empire. Ironically, Garbo's reputation among the Germans was also enhanced by the whole D-Day affair, which is just crazy. They blamed themselves for transmission failure, not Juan's intelligence. In 1944, he, he was informed that he had been awarded <laughs> the Iron Cross by the Fuhrer himself this is spectacular. for extraordinary services to Germany. And again, yeah. you have to remember that he was giving them, he gave them all the right information about D-Day, right. that it's right. coming and at Normandy and this is what's going to happen. But he just got it too late for them to do anything. And when they got this they were like, wow, we have this incredible spy who gave us all this information. Right. And ironically, in just like a really great turn of luck, um, at three o'clock in the morning where he was supposed to have given the intelligence, the person that was supposed to receive it did not meet their appointment, the German officer. Yeah. So it was even so, later than, than normal. Right. Yeah. So he was able to completely blame the Germans for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, just- just got to berate them for it when that was the goal the whole time. Well, he, and he did berate the guy and he told him, if it weren't for my high ideals, I would just quit this whole thing. Right. <laughs> Managed to get so <laughs> yeah. like indignant. It's so funny. Well, despite Germany's appreciation, Awan was still very, very concerned of revenge if they were to find out about him. And by 1944, there was reasonable danger of Pujol's cover being blown. Yeah, he had lived his whole life with reasonable danger of his cover being blown. <laughs> That's I mean, when true. You, well, That's true. I'm going to fight for the Republicans. I'm like, yeah, fight for the Republicans. No, I'm going to fight for the Nationalists. No, I'm going to escape. Mm -hmm. I'm going to desert. I'm going to go here. Yeah, I can be a signal. How hard could it be? <laughs> I know English. Yeah. What are you talking about? And his cover had right. been blown a number of times, so he was used to that. Yeah. Well. Getting out of the situation meant that Pujol had to disappear completely from London. Only not really. So he told the Germans that he was hiding out in Wales, along with the usual Pujol flair of extra details, like the fact that he was staying with a stodgy Welch couple and their half-witted son. Half-witted? <laughs> the words he used, yeah. That seems harsh. I would, I, see, I would have thought he would have told him he was in Lisbon. <laughs> it seemed to be his favorite place. MI5 pretended to execute another all-out manhunt for him. And in order to maintain realism, the police interrogated Araceli, 
who had no idea what was going on, and this completely terrified her. The reason that they had to do this was that Araceli had proved to be a loose cannon. And in fact, most of the people involved with the missions felt she just needed to be kept in the dark about everything. She didn't realize her husband was actually a real spy now. Right. MI5 files indicate that Araceli would embark on spirited rants and quote unquote adventures that often compromised missions. And they felt that she would be capable of anything in the name of self-preservation and getting what she believed her family was owed. Although she and Juan were eventually reunited, trust was so damaged between the two of them that they were really never able to fully recover. Well, when you have been turned in as a spy, when your wife goes down to the embassy <laughs> and says, hey, my husband's a spy. Could you hang him from that tree over there? Well, she didn't say that. She was just wanting to. Well, that, you know what happens to spies. They're not generally well, treated well. Right, but she went to Britain believing that he would be able to be a British spy. I mean, that was her goal, but it just it, it could have turned out badly. It could have tu- it's thing. hard to tr- it's hard to trust someone after they do something crazy right. like that. Right. Puts a strain well, on the on the marriage. I think both of them tended to be rather impulsive. I think both of them could have used some counseling. <laughs> but it, that's therapy. probably what drew them to one another. Yeah. But it's also what, you know, created all the, the angst for them. All of Juan Pujol Garcia's personal sacrifices were finally made worth it in 1945 when Germany surrendered. The elation on the faces of the Londoners around him gave Pujol a sense of accomplishment that he had never really felt before. In that moment, he finally felt that he was worthy to be his father's son. Later that year, Pujol embarked on a plane bound for Baltimore because J. Edgar Hoover himself demanded to shake the hand of the famed double agent Garbo. He kind of had hoped the Americans would offer him a job, but they didn't. They did, however, provide him with vital travel documents, and Pujol flew to Cuba to establish the alibi that he had been smuggled from London to Havana. MI5 gave Juan half the money that German intelligence had paid him to spy on England. Yeah, which would be about a million dollars today. They offered him even more money, um, which he actually turned down. Well, Pujol because decided- he didn't speak English. And when they said, hey, would you like more? <laughs> Here's a million and we're going to send you a check the next every month from now on for you know $10,000. He was like, no, 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 no. Because he didn't <laughs> speak English. He didn't know what they were saying. I'm sure by that time he could speak English. But yeah, that's funny. Um, he decided that he and his family, despite his tenuous relationship with Araceli, would fly to Venezuela. Then after that, Juan moved to Caracas to begin a job selling famous Spanish works of art. Now, the ironic thing about this is we've gone through all of Juan Pujol Garcia's history, right? At any point, did you hear me mention anything about art history? How hard could it be? (laughs) There you go. I mean, that's that's Juan's life. How hard could it be? That should be... On his tombstone. How hard could it be? It should be. It should be. Well, the family tried to settle there, but nothing worked out the way that it should have. Juan was accused and investigated for art fraud. (laughs) 
ironically enough. And Araceli caused a lot of controversy among the social elite. After a couple of years, Pujol was just done. He was just done. So he moved the family to Valencia, where the former chicken farmer hearkened back to his youth and he bought a farm. Just a lot more super advanced one um, that was actually head and shoulders above all the other farms. But however, true to the theme of Pujol's life, in 1948, protests swept that area. And because he was now a wealthy landowner, Pujol's estate was targeted and destroyed. That same year, Araceli left him. You know she was going to go when the money went. She was. She, she, I, I never liked that woman. <laughs> I think that she loved him. I think that it probably just had disintegrated to a point that that was the final straw for her. There are some conflicting stories regarding the dissolution of the marriage. Some say that Pujol sent Araceli home for a visit and abandoned her there. But Araceli's family strongly rejects this narrative, saying that the decision was hers. She hated farm life, and she saw no future for herself in Spain. Goodbye, city life. <laughs> that what it made you think of. It made me think of Green Acres. Okay, so no matter the reason, the separation was bitter and intense. In 1949, Araceli was given the official news from the British embassy that Juan Pujol Garcia, had perished of malaria while in Mozambique. Now, remember, he would have only been 37 at this time. Right. But he looked like he was 73. <laughs> no one knows exactly how she took the news, but being Araceli, she forged a way through, and eventually she began to work in a souvenir shop owned by Jewish-American Edward Chrysler, whom she ended up marrying. The two became Spanish high society, and Araceli ended up hosting the likes of Charleston Heston, Sophia Loren, Frank Sinatra, and Roger Moore. So, despite all of her hardships, she did all right. Sounds like she was a woman who was always going to land on her feet. Yep, I think she was. Pujol was buried by MI5 in 1949. Yet... Not long after, a very content man was walking the streets of Caracas. Hmm. Wonder who that would be. <laughs> yeah. The death of Juan Pujol Garcia had been faked. When Araceli had left him, he was only 36, so he just went on and rebuilt his life. He met and married Carmen Celia Alvarez. He started his new life by running a newsstand, and when that did not work out so well, he started working for Shell Oil Company. Get this, Chuck. Teaching English <laughs> to Venezuelan workers. Here we go. See, <laughs> and he still hadn't learned English. All how these, hard can it be? <laughs> how hard could it be? And you know what all these poor Venezuelans did? They walked out of there speaking Portuguese <laughs> because he knew how to speak Portuguese. He just was like, how hard it could be. I'll teach. They don't know what I'm teaching them. I'll just That's teach French. them Portuguese. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, weirdly, just like Araceli, he also found himself owner of a souvenir shop in a luxury hotel. But Juan Pujol had one last big business venture, and he decided he wouldn't just work in a souvenir shop in a hotel. He would own and operate one with a cinema, of course. But there was one problem. His fancy hotel hardly had any roads to the resort. Not a, not a lot of high stakes gamblers or whatever <laughs> like to walk five miles to get to where they're going. <laughs> well, 
I mean, it just goes to show he just had these this brilliant mind, but when it came to practical application, not so much. So like many of his ventures, this one failed miserably. But through it all, Juan stayed Juan. No one knew the truth about him, and only a few of his antics were known to his close family. Only a couple of times did his truly remarkable secret emerge. I love this. One of those times, Juan Jr., his son, was dating a girl from Mississippi whose stepfather was racist against Latinos. So, Juan Pujol decided to pay the man a visit, and when he did... He just leaned across the table and he calmly recounted the story of saving D-Day. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to rebut that. It's, if you if you're <laughs> that imagine? guy, it's like uh, how do I retort here? <laughs> well, after reading about some of Masterman's double intelligence work, British intelligence historian Nigel West made it his personal mission to find Agent Garbo. Eventually, he did find him, and he convinced Pujol to attend a meeting with other agents. In 1984, the 40th anniversary of D-Day, Agent Garbo was greeted with amazement and disbelief. Despite publicly coming forward, Juan was still very nervous about the public exposure and its danger to his family. But over time, he was finally able to allow himself to live freely. On October 10th, 1988, Juan Pujol died of a stroke. He was buried in a simple cemetery with a simple inscription reading, remembered by his wife, children, and grandchildren. But Juan Pujol Garcia was anything but a simple man, and his ingenuity and sometimes crazy bravery will have him remembered all throughout history. Juan Poole was a man with some of the worst luck in the world, but when his luck turned, much of the fate of the world turned with it. And no matter what, he just kept going. You can find Spy Stories on all the main podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook at Spy Stories Group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. The life of Juan Pujol Garcia reminds us, just as Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle. A good spy gets in there and fights. And until next time, just keep fighting. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. 